calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two, The Men of the Sea Chapter Seven, in which Astrea contends with Adramin, Part One Wakey, wakey, wakey! There's sunlight on the ocean, and if you had your scuttle open, you'd see it. Astrea woke to Mirak's abrasive cheerfulness at his door. For a moment he wondered if no one would notice if he stayed where he was. As he swung his legs out of his bunk and fumbled with the scuttle to open in light and salt air, he felt as if it had been only moments since the night watch ended. He sat on his bunk, watching the patch of sunlight rise and fall on the bulkhead. As he did so, he was aware that this day was beginning in exactly the same way as had the previous one, and the day before that, and before that. "'No navigation today. Cow says food for you. Meet me on deck as soon as you've eaten.' Estrella grabbed a towel and went to the tiny shower cubicle, where he stripped and pumped sea-water over his head until he could not stand the cold any longer. He rubbed himself down, pulled on his breeks, and went back to his cabin to get dressed. He paused as he was buttoning up his shirt and reckoned up how long he had been aboard Cygnus, and could not be sure how many days it had been since that first night when he had learned the worst about his grandfather Oron. It was not that the days were the same. Every morning brought new challenges, from working at the endless business of keeping the ship functioning, which Mirak called housekeeping, to acquiring seamanship knowledge and skills. And then there were the afternoons with Oron learning the use of a sextant, the mathematics of navigation, and the arcane manipulation of the green stones, and trying not to think of those thin, old fingers thrusting men to their deaths in the sea. Finally, when all he wanted was a few hours of quiet, he had to stand the watch that did not end until Adramin relieved him at midnight. There was so much to learn that he had lost count of the days. The door slid open, and Oron's stoop-shouldered servant placed a tray on the sea-chest. For the first time Astrea caught a glimpse of the man's eyes, looking into his own, when the white-haired head turned sideways as he went through the door. But he was gone before Astrea could say more than a brief thank you. He spooned chewy chunks of salt fish in some kind of porridge, contemplating the fact that the man's lowered head, which he had originally taken for obsequiousness, was actually the result of a permanently distorted neck. He wondered what kind of thoughts a man could have if he lived forever facing his own feet. Would he forget the constantly changing face of the sky? The thought echoed in his mind a little later when he came up on deck. All around the ship blue-green ocean stretched to an uninterrupted horizon. Overhead a flock of little clouds blew eastward as if the downy under-feathers of a plucked goose had been thrown across the sky. 
Cygnus was heading towards the sun with the wind on her port quarter. Long shadows swept back and forth across the deck in time to the ship's easy motion. "'Lucky you!' said Mirac, with a sidelong look at Astraea. "'The master suggests some more, um, recreational sailing.' Astraea briefly noticed Mirac's hesitation, but assumed that it was the sailor's wry humour. It had been under Mirac's guidance that he had learned to sail a longboat similar to the one that had kidnapped him, and his pulse quickened at the thought of another chance to sail. Mirac's instruction had started after only a few days aboard, and had continued whenever there had been suitable weather, and Oron had granted the time. Astraea had thrilled to sailing far out at sea in a boat a fraction of the Molly's weight, but carrying many times as much sail. Then, after several days of sessions in the longboat, Mirac had introduced him to the skimmers. They carried only one sail on a ridiculously tall mast, quite out of proportion to the size of the little boats. Skimmers were so light that they could sometimes fly off the top of a wave and become airborne for a heartbeat. As he now knew from Mirac's account of how Astraea and Gar had left Cygnus, the men of the sea usually sailed them alone, because they were not as responsive when carrying two people. Mirac had sailed with Astraea a couple of times, and then, on the third, waved him off on his own. Unknown to Astraea, the crew of Cygnus watched, discussed, and even made bets that they would have to rescue him, bets that were lost when he completed his first and all subsequent voyages. After several increasingly wild rides, Astraea looked forward eager to the next. "'While you've been eating your breakfast in the comfort of your cabin, these fine sailors have made your skimmer almost ready for you to go for a sail.' "'Why don't we take this one?' Astraea asked, pointing to another skimmer he had not seen before. "'Because you're not sailing in my boat, cousin,' said Adraman, as he appeared from the wheelhouse. "'She's too fast for you. Not like blowing along before the wind in that little crab-hauling coaster you sailed with your lubber friends, all of them terrified to go out past the harbour bar unless the weather's set fair for a week,' Astraea answered without thinking. "'You never saw the village fleet go after a school of cod on a windy November day.' "'Fleet!' Adraman spat the word out of thin lips. "'Let me guess.' Two or three squat little fishing smacks with woollen sails slopping their way downwind like ruptured ducks. In his mind's eye, Astraea saw the Molly leading the village boats through the gap between the headlands, one moment rising on huge rollers, the next disappearing into troughs where even the horizon was invisible, then racing down the foam flecked slope of a wave as it surged into the fjord. I learned more basic seamanship from Roaring Jack than you could teach me. Astraea snapped. Adramin laughed. Then perhaps you'd like to demonstrate your skill in a little race. When I've—oh, now you're starting to suck back, little man. You've got a lot to say, cousin, but when it comes to backing it up— Master on deck! shouted Mirac, and all the men turned from their work to face astern, where Oron stood with his cloak waving around him, one thin hand on the ship's rail. "'Master, there's a fair wind and a challenge given. Will you shake the bones for my cousin and me?' "'Do you accept the challenge, Estrella?' "'I accept,' snapped Estrella, ignoring the chance to back out. "'The circuit?' asked Adramin. "'Your choice,' said Estrella. Estrella heard Mirac groan softly at his elbow. "'Good.' said Adramin. Then you can be doing whatever it is that you do to prepare yourself for defeat, 
while we had the boat swung out. A hollow feeling made Estrella strangely calm. He had been hooked, played, and landed, but he was not going to give Adramin the satisfaction of seeing him twitch. "'Well, now you've done it,' said Mirac softly, as he and Estrella walked to the starboard side of Cygnus, where the skimmers swung from their davits. "'So I'd better tell you how bad it's going to be. You're in a race that any right-thinking person would instantly judge to be insanely dangerous. Here's how it works. You and Dramin sail around Cygnus, pick up your tackle, and the first boat hauled aboard wins. Simple, eh?' Estrella nodded, trying to keep his face expressionless. "'Well, that's not quite the whole story. The ship's not dead in the water, and she's not even going to be keeping a set course. Soon as we're afloat, the master starts to count. When he's got to some number he's chosen in advance, he reaches into that wide-necked bottle the steersman's just handed him, and pulls out a piece of whalebone with an instruction on it. Could be steady as she goes, could be close-hauled on starboard tack, could be jibe and run down wind. Nobody knows until he gives the order.' Um, that means that it could be a very long race, or a very short one, said Estrella. How right you are! And it could be really short for one boat, and the rest of the day for the other one. If the second boat isn't aboard before late afternoon, Cygnus heaves to, and the unlucky one is hauled aboard to face his shame, assuming we can find him. Now, tell me you're ready to take the helm, because if you aren't, you might as well just jump overboard right now and save the skimmer for someone else. Estrella nodded. Mirac looked at him thoughtfully. Very well. You're going to be busy. Don't try to grab air when you're crossing the ship's bow. That's the worst moment. You have to climb Cygnus bow wave, and that can slow you down just when you need the speed. And don't forget that the ship's wind shadow can steal your power, especially if you're running or have the wind abeam. Oh, and another thing. Oh, never mind. Just be lucky and go around the right way. Astrea shrugged. The ship's manoeuvring would favor either a right or a left-handed circuit, making the journey both shorter and better served by wind. However, there was no way of knowing which was the better way until the race was lost and won. He looked up at the skimmer, dangling from its davits with its hull at eye height and its mast swaying above him. It has a beautiful shape, he thought. There's no planking, Mirac. How is it made? Why do you ask? Least of all right now. Because I want to know, Mirac shrugged. It's made of weldweed, a kind of seaweed. We collect it at sea, and we cook it into a sludgy pulp in a liquid peg makes out of fish guts and bones. Then it's cured in that evil-smelling stuff you shoveled on your first day. It turns into what we call woad, which is squeezed and shaped to form the hull on the deck. Then we cook it some more until it's almost hard, and then we put the hull and the deck together like two parts of a clamshell. Then back they go into the stinking vats, where the shapes grow together with no seams, like a man's broken bones healing, only quicker. It grows in sea water, too, but not so fast. Mirac's answer came as he readied the sail, which bellied and flapped, its sheets slapping. The telling calmed them both. Estrella looked up to see whether Adramin's boat was ready. Mirac, has this boat been in the water as much as Adramin's? 
Mirak was now hauling down on the skimmer's halyard, bringing the sail taut along the mast, causing the whole boat to shake and tremble on the ropes from which it hung. Not near this long. This one's almost like new, as new as anything in this old ship. He belayed the halyard and frowned at Astraea from the middle of the boat as he checked the quick release on the two ropes from which it hung. In Adramin's boat, Betel was doing the same. Then it'll be a lot lighter, said Astraea. Mirak's frown smoothed over, and his teeth flashed in a quick grin as he jumped down to the ship's deck and supervised the men who were about to lower both boats until the tops of the waves just kissed their keels. "'You're thinking,' said Mirak, his voice barely audible over the flapping of the two boats' sails. "'That's good. With luck you may survive. Now go stand with Adramin.' Estrella climbed back onto the deck and walked half a dozen steps to where Oron stood in his master's cloak, the wide-mouthed lot-bottle in his hand. Adramin stood beside him in his usual inattentive stance, but his eyes were bright with anticipation. Estrella went to Oron's other side. The skimmers had been lowered until the topmost quarters of the sails were all that they could see of the two boats hanging from their recovery lines, their hulls just clear of the waves. Estrella looked down at Oron's cloak, billowing around his legs in heavy black folds. He felt eyes on him, and when he looked up he saw thirty or more sailors who were not on duty, standing at the rail, or hanging from the rigging to get a good view of the contest. Even those who were supposed to be working were taking every opportunity to watch. A murmur of conversation told Estrella that the men were taking bets on the race. He doubted that the odds were in his favour. Adramin was dressed as usual in close-fitting shark-skin to his wrists and ankle-high boots. He fidgeted with a glove on his left hand, opening and closing a flap over his greenstone ring. Estrella also wore black breeches, but his feet were bare, and he wore a white shirt, the sleeves rolled above the elbow. His waterproof jacket was knotted around his waist. His bracelet was a gleam of silvery metal on his left arm, its greenstone so vivid it flashed back at the sun. "'Put your jacket on,' said Oron. "'You'll drown your stone!' Estrella struggled into his jacket, feeling foolish that he had not remembered the flap on his sleeve above his clasp, similar to the one on Adramin's glove. Oron raised his hand, and the men were silent. Time slowed for Estrella. He listened to the ship's huge sails soughing and creaking overhead. He observed the bony silhouette of the old man's fingers against the distant horizon. He admired the wind-whipped clouds against the sky, and followed the master's hand as it slowly descended. Astrea's bare feet thudded on the deck a fraction faster than Adramin's boots as they both ran the few short paces to the rail. Then all his attention was on lunging outwards to catch one of the ropes from which his boat was dangling. His fingers closed on the rope and his legs wound round it in almost the same instant. Then he swiftly let himself down hand over hand, checking to alight gently lest he punch a hole through the boat's thin hull. The black shape of Cygnus loomed over him, and the rushing of water past the high black sides drowned all other sounds. He took hold of the quick-release gear that let go the two ropes from which the boat hung. He looked over the side to gauge the rise and fall of the waves, and jerked at the lever to allow the boat to fall the last arm span into the water so that he could sail free. The device stuck. Gritting his teeth, he jerked again, and was immediately drenched by a flare of spray as the boat fell half its height to smack down into a wave-trough. 
Estrella's boat wallowed and would have capsized if he had not been quick to balance it. Then the rudder bit into the water, the sail caught wind, and the boat moved away from the ship's side. He ducked down below the boom, sat on the edge of the shallow cockpit, and slid his feet under the straps that would hold him aboard. This took precious moments away from choosing his direction. He glanced ahead just in time. Adramin's boat, its sail full, charged at him, heading for the mothership's stern, cutting Estrella off from a smooth right-handed curve away from the ship's side. Grimly observing the rule that gave Adramin right-of-way, Estrella steered to pass under his stern, and began to chase the mothership up her leeward side. His first choice had been snatched from him. Estrella's skimmer gathered speed as he pulled away from Cygnus' wind-shadow. The long, open ocean waves lifted the little craft on their crests, and then slung her swooping down into the troughs. Estrella had been excited every time he had sailed. This time he was exhilarated, both by the speed and the keen edge of concentration that comes with competition. He moved without thought, shifting his balance forward as his boat climbed toward the crest, and then astern as he slid into the trough and began to climb the next wave. At the crest of the fifth or sixth blue-green wave, Estrella saw the extent of his disadvantage. High above him in the command position aboard Cygnus, Oron had shaken the lot-bottle and drawn out the bone that instructed him to go into a reach with the wind to port. The crew had eased the sheets, and now the mothership was heading towards Estrella's course, forcing him not only to sail out of her wind-shadow, but also to choose a direction that, though easier to sail, was not as fast. On this new course he did gain some advantage from the waves, in that most of the time he could sail along their crests, while the mothership ploughed her massive weight through the water on which his lighter craft danced. Watching Cygnus closely for any signs of further course changes, Estrella wondered how Adramin was doing on the weather side of those huge sails. His cousin had to be catching a clear wind, and was now probably preparing to round Cygnus' bow, with his journey shortened by the ship's turn to leeward by as much as Estrella's was lengthened. Estrella helmed his skimmer with all the skill he could muster, wondering as his boat thrummed along the foaming crest of a long rolling sea whether its lighter hull was giving him any advantage. He was closing fast on Cygnus' bow, and would soon attempt the trickiest part of the circumnavigation, crossing ahead of the ship around a plunging bowsprit that could impale his sail, dismast him, and roll him under the ship's forefoot to destruction. In a moment he would be trying this manoeuvre upwind, unlike Adramin, who would have the wind behind him, and to starboard, giving him the advantage of having right away over Estrella, who would have to give way, who would have to give way to avoid a collision that would put both of them at the mercy of the mother-ship's inexorable advance. "'Seething sculpins!' yelled Estrella, as the Cygnus began changing course to port, turning away from him towards her original course. Estrella had no choice but to do the same. Both Cygnus and he were now almost close-hauled. Spray off the wave-tops soaked Estrella from head to foot, and his feet were numb. He had sailed a greater distance than he had hoped, much of it away from the mother-ship. Somewhere out of sight, Adramin was contending with the other side of the problem, but there was no time for speculation. Out of the corner of his left eye he saw activity aboard Cygnus, and the ship changed course yet again, dooming Estrella to sail an even bigger arc to find wind. The mother-ship was now over his left shoulder, almost behind him, sailing with the wind behind her, 
casting her wind-shadow ahead. As he slacked the main-sheet to run downwind, he knew that Cygnus' manoeuvre also meant that if he acted swiftly he might be able to cut across Cygnus' bow. He tugged too hard at the tiller, and the boat's stern fish-tailed sickeningly, forcing him to waste valuable moments recovering balance and speed. A glance told him that despite the mountain of sails chasing him, he was making better speed than the ship, so he tried again. He winced as his boat teetered over Cygnus' bow-wave and surged ahead. Astrea gritted his teeth, shouted, "'Close hold!' to himself, and hauled in the main-sheet. The boat charged off a wave-crest and momentarily lost contact with the water. For one dizzying instant Astrea's future was beyond his control. Either he had chosen his moment correctly, or he would soon be swimming for quite probably the last time. He shifted his weight and let out a wordless yell of exhilaration and relief as the rudder responded, the keel gripped, and the skimmer sped off on its new course. A heartbeat later he looked up for the bowsprit and the curving headsails above it and knew that they were behind him. He had made it past the ship's bow. He looked ahead and glimpsed Adramin's boat just before it vanished behind his own sails, going the other way around Cygnus' brow. His cousin was in a mad downwind rush far closer to the big ship's bow than Astraea had dared. For an instant Astraea thought that Adramin must have miscalculated and would soon be dismasted by the Cygnus' plunging bowsprit. But in a masterly move, at the last moment Adramin threw his weight onto his boat's lee side, let fly the sail, momentarily slanting his mast below Cygnus' bowsprit as he cut just ahead of the white foam thrown up by the knife-edge of the ship's bow. For a moment it looked as if the skimmer's sail would strike the water, but the little boat skimmed across the ship's bows with its mast nearly flat against the water and its sail flapping like a flag. Just when a capsize seemed inevitable, Adramin swung a leg over the side and forced the keel back down, righting his boat and catching the wind afresh. Astraea swallowed, tasting salt water on his lips. Adramin's experience was prevailing. He had sliced through the eye of the needle, and was now in the last quarter of his circumnavigation, while Astraea was barely halfway around the ship. Astraea stayed with his intention to keep clear of Cygnus, in case she should make another sudden course change. He was aware that on the other side of the ship Adramin was racing towards his recovery lines. It would be a challenging downwind pickup, but Adramin had already demonstrated so much skill that Astraea prepared glumly for the eventual outcome. He shrugged, and tried to accept that the race was essentially won, and he could only hope to finish safely and soon, avoiding a humiliating rescue. Besides, there was little time for reflection. He was now on the opposite course to the mother ship, and would have to come about very soon. As his boat danced across the wave-tops, he glanced over his shoulder and gasped. Oron was jibing Cygnus! It was one thing to jibe in a small boat, indeed it was part of racing. However, jibing the mother ship under full canvas was a danger to everyone. Masts could be sprung or broken, sails torn away or spars shattered, unless every member of the crew did his job perfectly. Astraea lost a moment in amazement, and then saw the implication for his own completion of the race. Close hold, he yelled, and made it so. Astraea steered with his knees, hauling in the sheet hand over hand, bringing his boat onto a tight tack. Before Cygnus turned stern to wind, 
Estrella aimed for the mothership's side, somewhat aft of midships. If he guessed correctly, in the time it took for the skipper to reach her, the ship would draw her head enough for him to scrape under her stern, turn, and with luck reach his recovery lines. Even though he knew he had lost the race, if Estrella could bring off this maneuver, he would have at least made a good finish. He steered so close to Cygnus' stern that he could hear Mirak shouting orders on the deck above him. Cygnus' sails swung across her deck, taking the wind with a series of resounding thuds, but Estrella had no time to see if all was well with her masts and spars. The black side of the ship came closer and closer. Estrella could see salt stains on her hull. As his skimmer shuddered and dipped on the waves, he ground his teeth together, but did not spill the wind from his sail. He would not be humiliated by a long stern chase with the ship's company laughing at him. Despite himself, he stiffened for the shock of impact. The crash did not come. Instead, the skimmer rocked and swayed as it slid through the white turmoil of Cygnus' wake. Estrella whooped and shoved the tiller away from him. The little boat carried her speed so well that she barely touched the water in her rush into the wind alongside the ship. The recovery lines swung above him, and he stood to grab them, letting his sail luff. His boat slid onward, but it was fast losing way, as if dying under his feet. One moment he was overtaking Cygnus, the next he was at the same speed, then he began to drift behind. At the last possible moment Estrella's fingers closed on the forward line and hooked it onto the ring set in the boat's keelson. The skimmer was now a prisoner of the mother's ship, but with only one connection it could not yet be raised. If Estrella did not get the second hook into its ring, the skimmer would slam against Cygnus' hull. He lunged, and at the expense of a long scrape down his right arm, connected, and hooked the stern line into its ring. Haul! he yelled, and held up both his hands over his head. The boat jerked clear of the water and swung towards Cygnus. Estrella sat on the gunwale and walked his feet up the ship's side to keep the skimmer from crashing into the mothership's hull. Then he was above the deck, swinging on board, working to strip the sail from the mast as the boat descended into its cradle. Swathed in canvas, Estrella fumbled about until he had the flapping sail stilled, and then looked forward, expecting to see Adramin's triumphant face. Instead, he saw an empty boat cradle. Turning aft, he saw the backs of more than a dozen crewmen who were leaning over the rail to see what was going on astern. At that instant, Estrella knew that Adramin had missed his recovery lines, and now it was he, not Estrella, who was in the humiliating stern chase. Estrella grinned as he removed the sail, amazed that he had been successful. When he looked down at the deck, he saw faces looking up at him, and when several voices shouted his name, he almost dropped the bundled sail. Hans reached up to take it from him, and when he swung down onto the deck he was at the centre of off-duty sailors, some clapping and one or two drumming their heels on the deck. Their congratulations a confused sound in his ears, Estrella walked through a gap in the crowd towards Oron's tall, cloaked figure. The master held out both his hands toward Estrella, took a step forward, and dropped a silver chain over his head. Cold metal rested on his throat and redoubled congratulations came from behind him, drowning out all other sounds. Oron raised his right hand, and the cheering and stamping came to a ragged end. "'Estrea has earned the right to wear the dolphins,' said Oron in his old man's voice. "'Let the ship's company celebrate his achievement 
with a ration of land-born Peggy's poteen. A murmur of approval came from the crew, drowned out any need for Australia to reply. Oron raised his hand, and silence fell. At my command, we resume our journey south. Tomorrow, we will be at the city of the sea. You may wish to prepare yourselves for that meeting. You, Astraea, will join Adramin and me for the night meal in my cabin. Raucous laughter mingled with more cheers, and then died away. Betel and half a dozen sailors hung over the rail, waiting to haul Adramin's skimmer aboard. Those on duty returned to their tasks, and the others mingled in small groups. Astraea heard scraps of conversation as the men spoke about their destination. He heard the names of ships and of the people aboard them. Wondering what the city of the sea would look like, Astraea walked past knots of talking sailors. Two or three gave him a casual version of the fist-to-chin salute, while others grinned at him ruefully. He guessed that those saluting had won their long odds bet. Once again he was struck by the fact that all the men were old enough to be his father, and many were even older. He did not notice Mirak behind him until he reached the companionway and was starting down its steep steps. "'Just before you started racing, did the master tell you to take care of your stone?' he asked. Estrella nodded. "'I did what he said, but I didn't understand. I'm surprised you weren't told long ago. Splash of rain or spray doesn't hurt them, but if you were to fall in the ocean, within an hour your stone would be dead, like this one.' He held out his left hand, showing a stone like the one Estrella had seen on Adramin's hand. However, where Adramin's stone had been as green as Estrella's, Mirax was a dull grey. "'How did you?' Estrella began. "'Went for a swim when we were scraping the hull. I didn't plan on it, but then only the insane or the truly desperate do. I was lucky. Caught a trailing rope. I drank a lot of the salt chuck, but I got back aboard.' "'Couldn't you start your stone up again?' Mirak shook his head. Not me. Time was, or on could, but not any more. Estrella pulled his left arm out of his jacket, took Mirak's wrist, and held it close to his bracelet and stone. For a moment nothing happened. Then Estrella suddenly felt the familiar tingling. Mirak looked at Estrella curiously, and as he did so saw the ring on his hand shining green. My thundering oaks, he breathed, it's back. How in the name of all that's holy did you do that? Astraea shrugged. There was a commotion on deck, and they turned to see eight of the younger men charging across the deck, their hands locked into the downhaul of the recovery lines. Adramin's boat appeared over the rail, with his tall, black-clad figure standing one hand holding the mast, his jaw clenched. The moment his boat touched its cradle, Adramin vaulted to the deck of Cygnus and marched towards the companionway, leaving Betel to secure his boat. "'Mirak, you trained him well,' he said out of the side of his mouth. "'With respect, Commander,' said Mirak, "'Astraea didn't need much help from me. He's a natural.' Adramin stopped halfway down the steps, turned, and looked up at Astraea. "'Then congratulations, cousin,' said Adramin and to Estrella's surprise without his usual sarcasm. "'Your luck has earned you the dolphins. Don't let it go to your head.' "'Or you, Mirak,' he added. "'At your command,' said Mirak. He brought his fist to his chin in a salute, and the stone on his finger glowed on the lower half of his face. 
Abdomen was sketching a casual return gesture when he froze. You're stoned, Mirak. What happened? He did it, Commander. Estrella, he just did it. Estrella lit your stone? Mirak nodded. You can do this? Estrella nodded. I've done it before. Does anyone else know? asked Abdomen, and then answered his own question in something close to disgust. Well, everyone will, in less time than it takes for them to get into the poteen. With a curt nod to Mirak, he turned away and went below. "'Better get shifted into your best rig,' said Mirak. "'And—' he paused, and his dark eyes met Estrella's. "'It wasn't just luck. You sailed like an old hand and a good one.' "'Thank you, Mirak.' Mirak saluted Estrella with considerably more style than he had offered to Adramin, turned, and walked toward the bow. Estrella dressed for the meal with care, putting on the best white shirt and black breeks. When he turned to the metal mirror on the bulkhead to shave, he saw the gorget at his throat. The silver pendant was curiously wrought in the shape of two intertwined dolphins, and it hung around his neck so it exactly cupped the vulnerable spot between his collarbones. It was knife-fighter's jewellery. "'Damon would approve,' said Estrella. As he voiced his thought, Estrella sat down slowly on his bed. His eyes closed, and he saw in his mind's eye the companions with whom he had worked and lived. Gar, fluffing his white fringe of hair with both hands in a moment of wonderment. Roaring Jack, his beard swept to one side and one eye squinting against the wind. Damon, juggling his knife from one hand to the other. Lindy, that first day when they met at the river crossing, her skirts kilted up, her staff at the ready, looking at him with her steady, blue-eyed gaze. He lay back, exhausted from the race. At the edge of sleep he summoned more memories. Lindy, standing backlit against the window of the hall. Lindy, passing brushes and paint up the scaffold. Lindy, turning her face up to give him kisses that moved him like nothing he had ever imagined. He wondered if winning the race would impress her, and if she would approve of how he was being accepted into the life aboard Cygnus. He was learning navigation and seamanship. It was more than satisfactory to discover that he had enough power over the stones to amaze both Mirak and Adramin. It seemed that the master was grooming him to be a commander, perhaps a master some day, certainly not just one of the crew. But as he catalogued the accomplishments he wanted to boast about, there was a side to all of this that Estrella did not relish. It was the strange rapport that linked him to Oron. He felt his reactions, as he had never done with the people in the village. When Oron was irritated as he taught the law of the stones, and when he had a rare moment of amazement at what his grandson could do, Estrella did not have to go through the process of listening, watching, and interpreting his face or voice. He knew. It was similar to the way he had known and understood Gar, but it was different as well. Instructions from Oron were not like learning from Gar. They did not open his mind to what was around him. Estrella could think his way through the problems Oron set him, but he had felt on his pulse everything he had learned at the castle. And where finding out how to paint from Gar had been fulfilling, everything he learned aboard Cygnus was darkly shadowed by his knowledge that the discipline by which the ship was run was maintained by the fear of death at his grandfather's hands. 
The master was a cold, hard taskmaster, who offered none of the companionship that had accompanied learning to draw and paint. Nevertheless, there were connections between life at sea and how his life had been in the village. Aboard Cygnus he had stretched time sailing in the same way as he had in the fight on the beach, and again on the road from Teemouth, and then again at the castle. Sailing the long-boats and skimmers was beyond compare to the little cob in which he had blown around the sheltered waters of the village fjord, or even crewing the molly. Oron was cold and distant, but he taught a skill beyond the experience of any one Astraea had ever met. Learning navigation was a voyage of the mind into an internal, abstract world, intellectually connected to the business of shaping a course at sea, but satisfying in and of itself, like solving a complicated puzzle. Oron never told him that he had done the calculations correctly. He only grunted and stabbed a finger at the occasional mistake, forcing Astraea to work and rework problems until finally Oron nodded. Then the old man would swiftly erase the slate and send Astraea back to observe and calculate once more. Working the stones was different again. They called for an effort of the will that was both physical and mental, almost like interacting with a person. It had not been long until he noticed that though Oron's knowledge of working the stones was replete with a lifetime's experience, Astraea had more power over the shipstone than his grandfather. He could redirect the stone faster and easier, and though it was hard work, it did not exhaust him as it did the old man who taught him. Thinking about the stones carried him back to Lindy, and the moment when they had lit Gar's stone together. Nothing compared to the fulfilment that Lindy had given him. No one gave him the same calm assurance that had flowed between them when they were walking south, hand in hand. All that he was accomplishing at sea balanced in his mind against all that he had left behind, and as he thought of himself on the cusp between the two, he was both lonely and indecisive. A knock at his door brought him back from his musings. "'Enter,' he said with as much conviction as he could. Mirak appeared in the doorway. "'Come on deck for the toast of your victory,' he said. Estrella stood up, took a deep breath, and followed Mirak. "'What's poteen, Mirak?' Estrella asked as they climbed the companionway. "'Peggin's answer to whisky. Nobody knows how she makes it, but those who refuse it are few.' Look over there. She's tapping a keg already. Go celebrate your victory over Adramin. Mugs in hand, the sailors were lining up near the mainmast, where old Peg was ladling out her brew. Adramin was already standing beside the puncheon. He raised a hand in what Astraea took for an invitation, and Peg beckoned Astraea over and gave both winner and loser a measure of her brew. Adramin threw back his head and poured off his beaker in a gulp, his lean face momentarily tipped upward. Astraea imitated him and tossed the contents of his mug down his throat. He did not hear the cheer in his honour because he was gasping as liquid fire ran down from his throat to his belly. He gasped, blinking back tears, noticing that his mug had been refilled and that he was in the way of a line of men waiting for their turn. Numbed all over, he moved back into the shadows, dizzy and confused, but at the same time feeling quite able to start the entire mad race around Cygnus a second time. Mirak murmured in his ear, "'If you don't drink it up quick, it'll eat through the mug.' Estrella scanned Mirak's face, decided that he was joking, and took another sip. 
The smell warned him that it was akin to village whisky, but the taste was curiously sweet and warming. He sipped again, wandered back towards the command position, and, feeling suddenly dizzy, sat down on the deck with his back to the steersman's shelter. In the waist of the ship some of the men began to sing. Weary, oh weary, oh weary are we. We are the wanderers who sail on the sea. We're born on the ocean, we'll sail till we're old. We'll only reach land when there's one who's foretold. In an unnatural awareness brought on by the poteen, Estrella listened casually at first. Then, as they began taking turns to sing the verses before joining in on the chorus, he began to understand a fresh aspect of what it meant to live on a ship that had spent nearly a century at sea. The first thing we'll pray for, we'll pray for Peg's beer. May it be powerful, and may it bring cheer. If one beer don't do the job, then poteen will fix us. We'll each drink a million before they deep-six us. Weary, oh weary, oh weary are we. We are the wanderers who sail on the sea. We're born on the ocean, we'll sail till we're old. We'll only reach land when there's one who's foretold. The next thing we'll pray for, we'll pray for our master. Of all the stone-wielders, he does his work faster. And if one stone don't do the job, then more stones will fix him. He can have a whole million before we deep-six him. Weary, oh weary, oh weary are we. We are the wanderers who sail on the sea. We're born on the ocean, we'll sail till we're old. We'll only reach land when there's one who's foretold. The next thing we'll pray for, we'll pray for our home. She's Cygnus the swan, and she flies o'er the foam. She's tall, slim, and willing of ships, she's the fleetest, and we'll sail her forever or until they deep-six us. Weary, oh weary, oh weary are we. We are the wanderers who sail on the sea. We're born on the ocean, we'll sail till we're old. We'll only reach land when there's one who's foretold. The next thing we'll pray for, we'll pray for a drowning. He dresses in black, he's a mighty fine seaman. Of pride and ambition he's equally mixed. He wants to be master before he's deep-sixed. Weary, oh weary, oh weary are we. We are the wanderers who sail on the sea. We're born on the ocean, we'll sail till we're old. We'll only reach land when there's one who's foretold. I got one, I got one, shouted one of the younger sailors, waving his mug above his head. The next thing we'll pray for, we'll all pray for Mufrid. We'll toast him in poteen that's rotted to putrid. He's not master yet, though he cunningly fixed Astraea and Gianfar, so they got deep-sixed. Astraea sat up and stared at the singer, whose crude verse assigned blame for the punishment and death of both his father and Gar. As he watched and listened, he realized that he was being observed by Betel whose expressionless eyes stared at him so fixedly that Estrella thought for a moment that the man was Blotto from the poteen, until he swung one hand edgewise across his throat. The singers fell silent, and the man who had volunteered the last verse mingled with his crewmates and disappeared from sight. Estrella frowned, his mind moving slowly to the conclusion that the sailors knew more about the master's family than Merak had admitted. As he tried to marshal his confused thoughts, a new distraction captured his attention. 
A fiddler brought out his instrument, tuned it up, and began a quick-step dance tune. At first the fiddle reminded Estrella of the solemn and joyful winter dances at the village, each woman with her man, and the unmarried couples distributed about the hall, so that they would pay as much attention to the dance as to each other. Then he remembered the party in his honour, when Teenmouth had chosen him as their scholar. Then the present claimed all of his attention, and what he saw was new to him. A pair of men began to dance. They faced each other and bowed. Then the first performed a complicated set of quick steps, lunged at the other, and held his position like a statue as the other executed a quicker and more complex response. Then he, too, froze into a formal pose, and the first quickened the pace. When the two were bowing, Estrella recalled how men in the village sometimes performed a solo sword-dance over old weapons preserved from that one use. But this had none of the traditional formality he remembered. The sailors' dancing was more a frenzy of wild gesticulations, mad gyrations, tensed faces, bared teeth, far fiercer and more abandoned than anything Estrella had ever seen. A body obscured his view of the dance duel, as a half-naked sailor tripped over him, staggered, and lurched on towards the weather rail. The man's bare back shone white above his brown-clad legs, which vanished as he leaped onto the ship's rail and down onto the narrow devil plank that ran around the ship just below the level of the deck. Another sailor followed, and then another, only their bare feet and waving arms keeping them from falling over the side. The leader reached the stays, grabbed the ratlins, and swarmed upwards. He shouted as he yanked at a spare halyard until someone at the foot of the mast freed the end, allowing the daredevil to swing around the mast and out to leeward. The watchers shouted advice, profanity, and drunken screams that were somehow electrifying to Estrella. It was as if someone stood in his ear whispering, "'You could do that!' He stood, took a pace forward, to join the follow-the-leader romp along and above the darkening ship. A heavy hand on Estrella's shoulder stopped him. He shook his head, annoyed at the intrusion into his plans. "'You're new to this,' said Mirac. "'You've probably never drunk anything stronger than beer.' "'Certainly have,' said Estrella, swaying back from Mirac. "'My village, we make good whisky, and I've had a small portion since—since—since since, since I wasn't a boy any longer. I can stand and work when I've had—had—had had, had a swig. I've done it for bar, b before aboard the Molly. I am absolutely—' The entire contents of Astrea's stomach rose up within him and attacked his throat, his eyes streaming so that he could barely find his way to the lee rail before he heaved and heaved and kept on heaving. After long agonizing moments he saw that he was not the only one who was retching helplessly. A line of men clutched the rail, vomiting into the sea. Then, as suddenly as it had come, the fit left him. "'I think I'll have another drink now,' he said. "'You do, and you'll regret it,' said Mirac. "'That's what they're going to do. Watch!' Two men, who moments earlier had been heaving their stomachs empty, strode purposefully towards the poteen puncheon and tipped back a measure each. Almost immediately they were galvanized into activity. One joined a clutching, gambling, weaving tangle of men who danced insanely to the squeaking fiddle, the other grabbed the recently emptied halyard and launched himself into the air to swing far out to leeward, yelling obscenities as he went. "'After what you've had, you'll only have a headache,' said Mirac, his voice low but even. "'But if you go on, 
Tomorrow you'll wish you'd never been born. What's more, he added in a matter-of-fact tone, you may not enjoy the night. There's a few of us who stay ready to catch the worst of the problems, protect the women, the stills, the fresh water, and the men, but we don't always make it in time. We lost two men last year. L lost Australia hiccuped. Over the side. Wh wh why does Oron allow it? It's always been done after a good race, and it clears the air. There'll not be a fight for six weeks after this, and I had to break up one only yesterday. But the men who were killed, not killed, said Mirak, lost. Over the side, and down into the deep six, gone. That's why you should stop drinking now and get to your cabin. Bolt the door, too. Why? Is it the drink, or are you just stupid? Haven't you noticed that the poteen makes men do anything? Look, we've been running an all-man ship for years, if you don't count Peg and a couple of grandmothers. Estrella stared at Mirak, trying to unravel what he had said. Mirak's voice softened as he explained. Look, you're the youngest on the ship. If you don't fancy other men, and even if you do, it could be nasty for you. Estrella's jaw dropped. And nobody stops it, he asked. Stop someone like that? said Mirak, jerking one thumb upwards. A reveller clutched the end of the loose halyard that dangled from the top of the mainmast. He swung himself up onto the main boom, ran on nimble feet to the end, and then launched out over the sea, shrieking. Moments later he was back over the deck, his body bunched like a spider on the end of its strand of silk. Then he dangled out over the sea again like a grotesque, wingless bird, and returned twice as fast directly towards the end of the boom. The man's scream changed from insane joy to terror. He managed to ball his limbs into a lump just in time to miss the heavy spar, so that he struck the sail a glancing blow. He let go the halyard and fell nearly twice his own height to the deck below. Estrella started forward, but the man sprang to his feet, gave a whoop of glee, and rushed back to take another drink. A trickle of blood ran across his face. The skin was scraped from one shoulder, and he left a trail of bloody footprints across the deck. A burst of raucous laughter came from the men around the puncheon. Estrella found himself joining in, as if what he'd seen was a huge joke. "'Not much point in talking to him, is there?' said Mirak. "'Now, take a walk with me back to your cabin. They won't go near you with me alongside.' Still bemused, but accepting the escort, Estrella walked beside Mirak, trying not to stagger. His knees were loose, his head seemed to be lighter above his shoulders than usual, and he couldn't keep his mind on any one thing for more than a moment. As they descended the companionway, he thought of three good reasons why he should rejoin the festivities overhead. Only Mirak's firm hand gripping him above the elbow kept him heading towards his cabin. It seemed to Estrella that it took a very long time to find their way along the passage, because there was so much to think about. So many shadows to watch, swinging back and forth, so many fleeting thoughts to wonder at, before he was being pushed through the door. When Mirak kicked the door shut and lit the lantern, Estrella stood watching him as if he had never seen a flint and steel before. He sat down heavily on his bunk, leaned forward, reached down between his knees, and laboriously pulled at the catch of the footlocker under him. "'Chances are you can't understand me,' said Mirak, "'but I'll tell you anyway.' Your boat was rigged to fail. Adramin planned it, and Bettel did it before the race started. Bettel hasn't got the brains to think of something like that, and he didn't notice that I saw him and fixed everything except the quick release you had trouble with. Go 
Go on. I can follow you, Estrella. Mirak tipped Estrella's chin so that the lantern light fell into his eyes and looked closely into them. Perhaps you can, he admitted grudgingly. Now, I'm not supposed to be telling you this, but... Estrella's concentration failed, and he peered over Mirak's shoulder at the movement of light and shadow cast by the lantern. The light took fascinating shapes that coalesced into a picture so real that his eyes flooded with tears. Silhouetted against the dark wood, Estrella saw Alana's white hair with the light behind it. His mouth open, he waited for her to turn towards him, but instead the vision softened and faded, and he was left blinking at the meaningless dance of light and shadow. Gradually he became aware that Mirak had been talking for some time. "'So you're a mystery to them, and some of them believe you can do anything. Now don't go to sleep on me. Stand up, and when I step out of the cabin, bolt your door.' Estrella nodded and impulsively clasped Mirak's hand. He looked into the deep-set eyes, minutely observing the lines that surrounded them. "'Thank you, Mirak. You're the first person aboard this ship who's cared about me. I'm deeply grateful.' He felt a sudden urge to throw his arms around Mirak and sob. "'The door, Estrella! Bolt the door!' Mirak left the tiny cabin and pulled the door after him. Estrella slumped onto his bunk, suddenly exhausted. The door opened again. "'Bolt the door, Estrella, you block-headed, tree-climbing, dung-footed lubber!' "'I am not,' said Estrella to the closed door. He stood, shot the bolt into place, and fell back onto his bunk. He was unconscious before his head hit the pillow. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit EstrellaTrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.